yeah, but outside of that, who who came up with the um, art cover? So I gave the idea to Emily, and yep, I think her one is like Emily Creative, Emily Rose Creatives, from here on Instagram. I'm not oh, getting yeah. I'm not getting any money from her, so whoever can listen to this can listen. Mm. Uh, I said, look, this is my this is what I'm trying to uh, attempt, and then uh, can you draw this? And then she came up with some concept yeah. designs, and then I said. Oh, can you improve this bit here? You know, I want to put that little guy. I'm not sure if you can see the artwork, the little guy there. No, I can. But I said, the fire takes, it should be the primary, and the, and this little guy, um, this is how he relates to the fire, and this is how he is. Uh, he's been walking around the desert for a very long time. Uh, the fire is like a little god. The fire is like a beacon and a guide. Can you insert a person there? And I, I didn't say whereabouts. I, I had it in my mind, but I was like, you know, if I'm going to like control this way, I'm not using her talents as a an artist to let her. Yeah. And, you know, I was like, you know what? I'll delegate it. This is my, this is what I'm describing. Draw it for mm. me, right? You're, you're the yeah. artist. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And this is the result. It's actually, it's a, as an artwork piece, it's actually quite good. I really like it. Oh, that's good. It's okay. got this, um, this, this, it's got this almost ethereal oil painting. Yeah, I, I was trying to go. Like she said, oh, can you be realistic? What kind of this? Like, well, I want to do maybe a water water painting kind of a yeah. So a little it, bit. It, she's done a she's done a fantastic job. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, the artwork piece is, is really really good. I I just think that um as it change also the typography a little bit, and you'll have a have a really nice little piece of artwork there. Yeah, I think I think this was like, before. So I commissioned the artwork, but I haven't. Locked in the the Gmail accounts, the Twitter accounts, and the titles. Yeah, that's cool. You can always um, modify that. I think you, can, there you, were... you can always change the names as well. Yeah. So yeah, all right. We'll yeah. take it in for next time. Make it bold. All that kind of good stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm gonna make a note on this document. So I guess we're here back again for episode three with the Fire in the Desert with myself, Johnny, and Patrick. How you going? How's it going? Pretty good. It's good. All right. We all went to the port of Incheon and we were just waiting. Then suddenly, we were told that we might not be able to depart. We even thought that it was too foggy that day. But because it was once in a lifetime field trip, we all wanted to go. And then the ferry just started to depart. At the time, we were having fun playing recreational games. Then it became the next day morning. We were all eating breakfast. Even then, we were eating on a tilted ferry. We said amongst ourselves that our soup was tilted, but at that time, we thought it was because of the waves. So up until this point, we were all just laughing. Nobody thought it was a big deal. There had been breaking news, and that's when we realized that something was wrong. Some of our friends started to call their parents, and I can't remember exactly, but according to my friends, there was an announcement that particularly instructed Dan Wan high school students to stay still. Because we have always been told that we'd be safe if we follow instructions, we followed instructions. And it got darker because the ferry was filling up with water. Out of the windows, we could see the ship was sinking. Then more and more water came in. So we were standing on our luggage, and we heard water come in from the very end of the ferry. We were in a very wide room. There were cabinets that separated rooms. We heard someone screaming from the far end, and suddenly all the cabinets collapsed. If it wasn't for the cabinets falling down, 
we would never have made it out. And we came out from what could be the hallway. But because the ferry was sinking, we walked out the walls. Once we came out, we saw our friends. They told us to come out. Nobody was there to rescue us. We didn't even need to run, because we're just one step away. If we took just one step, we would be in the ocean. But we were afraid to do so, so we just stood still. Then, suddenly the ocean water rushed into the boat and held onto something and resisted. But I think a lot of my friends were swept away. That's when I realized that I really needed to get out of there. The people outside pulled me out, and that's how I escaped the ferry. I can never forget that day. So that was an extract from an interview from John Hap News Agency with Jiang Yan Jin, who was one of the high school students who survived the sinking of the seawall, which occurred on 16th of April 2014. The loss of the seawall and its passengers shocked the South Koreans and led strong criticism by the public over the rescue and recovery efforts by the government. It turned a significant portion of the public against the president for poor leadership, who would eventually be impeached for abuse of power bribery and corruption. And today there is a deep divide between the progressives and conservatives in South Korea. So I'm not sure, but I, I think I asked you to uh, watch the YouTube video in the absence. Yeah, I did. Yeah. How yeah, did you find doc- out? It, doc- it was the documentary. Yeah. Um, uh, in, in the absence, right? Yep. So what did you think? It's a very, it's a very harrowing story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mul- multiple failures on multiple levels and um, great human tragedy. So have you actually heard about this thing before? No, I hadn't. Initially, when I um, started reading the initial um, description, it reminded me of another, I think it was another um, boating or ferry, or it might have been a ferry. Uh, um, I think it was an Italian one. Was it the Concordia? Italian, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think it was. And um, I was, and I'm, when I was initially looking at some of the details, I was going, hang on, I thought this was in Italy. I was surprised that I hadn't, I couldn't remember um, this this event from, um, Back in twenty, well, only in only twenty fourteen, only a couple of years ago, really. Yeah, totally skipped over my mind at the time. But obviously, watching watching that watching that documentary and um, listening to some of the pers- some of the personal accounts from uh, people who were involved and um, obviously passengers involved in the rescue rescue attempts um, and the recovery uh, and the post recovery afterwards, um, it was um, quite compelling. Yeah, like it, like the ferry sinking. Capsizing mm. itself is one one area. The yeah. recovery efforts, it's it's is another entirely. What did you did you like remember where where the diver would just like attach a hose to the outside of it just because mm. the president was there overseeing the thing? So they oh we got to look busy. So yes, yeah. I, and and the funny thing is uh, when I heard that I went my my reaction was hang on wasn't that what happened with the Italian ferry? And had to go. I had to go and look it up. Look it up again because I was it, inexplicably. It seemed like I was I was merging the two stories together almost. Yeah, which is really strange. But um, no, I do I do I do remember. We, um, I was listening to that that account going. You can be working it to recover, and try to um, either save save people or under, or work out if there are people there just who can still still be saved. But no, we have to do the PR. The, the PR exercise because um, the politicians are here. Mm. Well, yeah, you know, I think just recently yeah. one of my friends uh, made a note that the bushfire for Black Summer, Australia, mm. that that royal commission's uh, going ahead. Yep. And, um, we'll see what happens from there. Mm. But 
Yeah. So, so we'll we'll look into the the sinking of the, the vessel in the seawall, and the way I usually try to look at it is before the event, so pre-event before sinking, the event, the actual sinking itself, and the post-event, which is the recovery efforts. And um, what I'll try to do is I try to bring it all the way back to a person, the the, the figurehead of that company who is responsible for influencing his organization for setting the boundaries and we come to a guy called Yu Biong and uh, he's the chairman of the Chonghejin Marine Company which is the which owns the MVC wall he actually started his own church I, I think it's like a, a cultish kind of church I wouldn't say it's a Christian church like they use the, the terminologies but um, it's got scandals from the fall of uh, competing with another cult over money, I think there's like a, a murder involved. Um, that's all available on the web for you guys to look at. Um, he's an art lover and a philanthropist, and he likes to uh, take photographs. So that will be an, another influence on this uh, uh, marine vessel. His uh, philosophy, and that's where he comes. That's where the church comes in. Is that he always preaches about you know pushing ahead, self sacrifice for success. Like it's all about that success in life, in business, do whatever you can to be ahead of life. And that, that would flow down to his organization, to his executives. I think one of his, his executives are also part of his church as well. And it all flows down to the running of that ship. Yeah, so um, Yubi, Yubi Yongun, is that Yubi his name? Yong, and we just call him as Yu, because uh, Yu. Okay. I'm not very good at Korean. Uh, that's the chairman of no, the company. That's all good. Imagine, imagine, like he is one of the leading figures in South Korea. Imagine him mm. like a Donald Trump, a um, a Clive Palmer, a Jonah Reinhardt, but then yep. smash it together Captain, with like Captain, captains of industry, but smash it together with a with a church, a fully outfitted church to go with it. Yeah, like, like smash it together. With, I don't know, like Joel Osteen, that kind of thing. It's like, holy oh gosh, <laughs> and he, and that's how. That's how he's sort of like. He, that's how he's sort of running his life in in South Korea. We don't have that in Australia. Sound, sounds like, delightful. Oh. All right. So, just a little bit about a, a news article called "The Root Cause of the Calamity" on slowjournalism.com. So, the biggest shareholder in Chonghejin Marine is a company called Chonghejin. Biggest shareholder in Chonghejin is a company called I1I Holdings. I1I Holdings is a holding company of the Simo Group, which was founded by Yu Biong in 1979. Simo made its money through soap and cosmetics and soon moved into numerous other industries, including shipping. The company thrived through the country's uh, economic miracle of the 1980s, but a series of accidents, uh, 14 people died in a cruise boat crash in 1991, and scandals, Yu spent four years in prison for fraud, took its toll. And Seema declared bankruptcy at the start of the Asian financial crisis in 1997. Not that bankruptcy would slow you down. He rebuilt his empire with minimum possible transparency. Neither his nor his children's names were on any documents linking them to Chonghejin Marine. When the government blamed Yu for a seawall, he was forced to issue a denial. His New York spokesperson, Michael Ham, said Yu was shocked and deeply saddened by the incident, but did not have any involvement in the management or day-to-day operations of Chonghejin. He didn't have time to run a business, Ham added. 
because he had spent every single day of the past four to five years as an alter ego A. Hey, staring out of a window taking photographs. So according to the ahey.com website, the mysterious Korean industrialist known as A. Hey, a an old-fashioned Korean word for a child, took more than 2.6 million photographs between 2009 and 2013. So that's around 2,000 photographs a day or 80 an hour, not accounting for sleep or toilet breaks. Taken from the exact same spot, a small studio in a disused aircraft hangar in the South Korean countryside. The photos show birds landing on branches, ripples on the surface of a pond, trees shredding leaves and growing them again. They weren't anything special, yet they were exhibited at Grand Central Station in New York, the Clarence House in London, the Palace of Versailles, and the Louvre in Paris, where Ahey had his name etched in stone thanks to his large donation. Ahey clearly liked France, even if he never visited it. A month up before his Louvre exhibition, he purchased Colbifi, a abandoned French village. A year later, he hired British composer Michael Nyman to write a symphony for him, Symphony Number no. Six Ahe Through the Only Window. The Symphony Number no. Six Ahe Through the Only Window was performed by the London Symphony Orchestra. So, holy nuts! This guy is spending lots of money. I don't know how he does photographs. He must be like putting it on like burst or something like that, and taking like what two point what. 2.4 2.6 million photographs from the same spot he's been busy ah oh, you must have it like on like you know it's like the bird in simpsons uh, the, the drinking bird where it just presses a button and home is on sleep yep yeah that's how pretty it, much oh that's how that's how it sounds like he's been he's been a busy fellow i'm, I'm surprised I'm, I'm somewhat surprised um he's able to pat if he's spending so much time running um with his photography which is called freelance photography business and he's not having enough time to run his company, how he's able to pay off all these people in um, the Louvre and Versailles and in New York to actually get them to do what he wants. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think you can smell BS. So uh, continuing, a uh, press release for Ahe included no photo portraits of the artist who refused to give interviews or attend his own ex- exhibitions. But it did include... We're talking about here, right? Uh, Ahe, they explained, was an inventor an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, an environmental activist, a martial artist, a painter, a sculptor, a poet, and a photographer. So nothing about business bit. Um, I would a... love to see his LinkedIn profile. <laughs> yeah, LinkedIn. I do everything. Uh, he was a master of taekwondo <laughs> and judo, and he had created his own discipline of self-defense. He was responsible for more than a thousand inventions, including numerous household items, health tonics, and award-winning colon clean cleansing device oh my gosh and several boats he had sold his photographs for huge sums he didn't mention that his main clients were the chong Jin marine and the evangelical baptist church of korea so <laughs> sounds like a pyramid scheme for me <laughs> oh gosh all right this, yeah anything this, else? there's almost no the, art, the article almost reads like a like the it's the lead up or the setup to a comedic punchline oh, it really does yeah like, it, it's 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 absolutely horrifying after watching that watching that documentary um that you sent me earlier um it's absolutely horrifying that this is the guy behind behind the scenes of everything <laughs> well obviously anyway, obviously uh you know marine safety is not one of his priorities there it's, well i didn't see that on his oh, list gosh. of accomplishments 
Yeah. Anyway, right. the article continues. Do you want to keep going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the ch- church was founded in the early 1960s by you and his father-in-law, and it now claims 100,000 members. Whether it's a religion or a cult is a topic of favorite debate. Its doctrine, at least when compared with other Korean religious movements, such as that of Reverend Moon's Unification Church, isn't particularly unusual. Salvationists reject the notion of repentance and place a great emphasis on health and cleanliness. So it's no coincidence that you invented a portable animal device used to cleanse salvation bodies of impurities. Yuck. Um, yeah. In a word, that, I, I think that's how that's how he managed to sell it. Like, create, he got the inventor. He a scam. Ta- well, that's how he got the um the inventor role on his um resume. Oh gosh. <laughs> In 1987, Yu was arrested following deaths of 32 people, allegedly cultists linked to his church, who had been involved in an apparent suicide pact. Several of the victims had funneled funds to Yu, who denied involvement, and was later cleared of any connection to the deaths, although it did lead to a fraud conviction and a four-year prison sentence. His crime was defrauding members of his church and using their money to fund his numerous business ventures, including Simo. In the weeks after Seawall, Prosecutors alleged that church money had been used to prop up the debt-ridden Chonghaejin Marine. So, oh my gosh! Like there is just money going back and forth. There's there's church money being used for business schemes. I think that the church, the the church, the word church uh, is applied very extremely loosely to what you've just described here. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure whoever's writing this is not. He sees all religions as you know the same, like the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Um, was it Seventh Day Adventist, Mormon Church, whatever? But, the, thing. but this is another. This is another animal unto itself. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah, we talk about him as a big figure in Korea, and we know why. He's got his own church. Mm. He's got a personality. He's got a hidden personality too. Um, but in this scenario. In as as the, as as Seawall, he is the owner. He is the accountable manager. He is responsible for communicating the boundaries that his employees act safely. So, if he's a CEO, he tells them, "This is how you do business, and this is how much risk you should you should take. Everything else, you pass it up to me, right?" Um, mm-hmm. And that's when you pass that direction down to your middle management, to your responsible managers who carry out your um, uh, your direction. And they're also, you know, acting in the middle to follow what you, you've done and then to also, you know, bid for resources. Um, but what's interesting is that we learned that many of the company executives of the, the ferry belong to Yu's church. So they have the same mentality. So what I'm trying to look at is his beliefs that, you know, success at any cost um, that shapes the company to take as much risk and self-sacrifice for gain. And self-sacrifice sort of in the company sense also includes defrauding other people, cheating other people. Like we, we've seen his, he, he's, in, he's been in jail for four, four years. He's taken money from the church, which is supposed to be for the church, but he's moved it to other business adventures. Like this guy, this guy, I, I wouldn't trust this guy at all. I'm amazed. Well, see, it's well. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, no. From the sound, from the sounds of it, it seems like you've got a whole ton of people in France and New York and in South Korea that um trust him implicitly. Yeah. Enough to enough to scroll his name onto um buildings and um have art shows um dedicated to him. Yeah. Mm. Oh, it's 
it really is just. I mean, you you described him bef- described him before as a um a Clive Palmer or or a Trumpian type archetypal character. Well, um, that's how we'd see him in, in business. Like that's how big his name is. I'm not saying he is Clive Palmer. He is a Donald Trump. But I'm saying mm. no. It's a, it's a, it, it sounds like almost on a, it's on another. It, this is on another planet, on another level of yeah. That. This is that kind of personality, that kind of name in business. If you were to take that in Korea and put it translated to Australia, that's how we would see him. He's one of the big names, but but in this in this case, it seems like South Korea has gone and done it done it on another level entirely. Oh, he's he's another level. He's got all these other companies. Like I, Clive Palmer doesn't have a church of his own. Like I don't I don't know, but that we know of. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so we're gonna look at the actual ferry itself. So the M, the mm. ferry MV Seawall, so marine vessel Seawall. So the route is actually from Incheon's near Seoul, to the, from the top of the South Korea, to Jeju Islands. So it's near the South uh, Japanese Islands and the Yellow Sea. Uh, and, the, and the ferry conducts about three round trips in a week. One way is about 425 kilometers and 13.5 hours. So that's when you heard about the survivor story where uh, they depart in the evening and they arrive. The capsizing occurs about in the morning time. So a very long trip. Uh, it carries passengers. Uh, cargo vehicles and also i think they're taking uh, material as well to a naval base at jeju island uh so the boat so or the ship i'm not, I'm not a navy person so but boat ship uh, either so it had upgrades and had expanded passenger cabins so trying to increase the many passenger capacity and that's when they also built a fifth deck for the art gallery for a I hate a photographer, so got got to fit the art. Why why is there a fifth deck on the ship that can probably throw off the center of gravity? Well, it's this art gallery <laughs> to sell more artworks. Um, As I said, this reads like a this reads like a comedy skit. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's 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 uh, tragic, and I'm like. And that's what I keep coming back to. Going, it's easy to laugh at, at some of these antics, but then you realize, oh, you have this human tragedy that's occurred, yeah. and people have died, people have lost loved ones. And you go, oh, hang on, yeah, like, it's not funny, but it's like, oh my no, goodness, no, I get, I get it. Oh. Um, so one of the things is they have a, a ballast system. So I had to look it up. So they basically have like two tanks on either side, so port and starboard. And when mm. the, the it's prevent the boat from rolling on its um, on its side. So when the tide hits, uh, the wave hits one side, it tries to reduce the the effect of by um, pumping water into one side and keeping it into one side when it tilts the other side. So uh, look it up on Wikipedia. There's a, there's really good animations out there. So these compartments, the company pumps out the ballast water. So the the stability system, um, so they can put more cargo in there, and and it can't use the cargo as a ballast because it's the water is part of the system that allows the pump to shift the weight from left to right. Um, well, it makes sense. We don't need the boat to stay level or not capsize. Well, and then there's also a constant st- turnover of staff. So uh, one of the things they found out was a lot of short term contracts for these. Or the staff that has no corporate knowledge for running this yeah. boat. 
So high high turnover of staff. High so turnover. Can... It's cheaper to run uh what short term staff and contracts, so you don't have to pay any like superannuation that kind of stuff. Well, if that's an Australian sense. Yeah. And one of the things I found when I was looking at this was uh, a paper called "A Systematic Analysis of South Korea's Seawall Ferry Accident: Striking a Balance Between Learning and Accountability." So the operating company of Chonghae Jin Marine Company purchased the ferry in 2012 from Japan. They remodeled it to raise passenger capacity by 116, so that is from 840 to 956, and end up with an increased gross tonnage by 239 tons, that is from 658 6 tons to 68825 tons. The company added extra passenger cabins and an art gallery on a third fourth and fifth decks to the stern. This remodeling shifted the ferry's center gravity upwards and to the stern, and therefore the cargo weight limit was reduced by 1,360 tons, so from 2,427 to 1,077. So ignoring this new cargo weight limit, the ferry, when it capsized, was almost twice its limit cargo weight. In order to compensate its cargo overload, a crew member had a practice of overdraining ballast water carrying only about 43% of the standard quantity. Um, so, so yeah, we, we talk about the ballast waters. Um, because it's now overweight, they try to pump out some of the water, uh, allows them to at least maybe store some of the more cargo on board and carry more passengers. When you have more cargo and more passengers, you're making more money. Um, but we talk mm. about the ballast system doesn't work if there's no water in there. Right? It can't use boxes in there or passengers and sheets yeah. to switch back and forth. Uh, in terms of seaworthiness documentation and inspection, so it says, it's a, going back to the paper, this unsafe operation was possible since marine operation operating inspectors examined the loading conditions only by visually checking the load line on the hull of the ferry. The crew members noticed the ferry's balance problems a few months before the accident and reported it, but company officials did not respond to it. Some dock workers also said that the ferry was so unstable that it lurched badly during loading and unloading. In summary, the combination of reduced ballast water and overloading of the cargo raised the ferry's center of gravity upwards and made it more prone to tip due to its reduced restoring force. And then at first, the company inappropriately and illegally modified the seawall in 2012 to make more room for passengers. The company sub- submitted falsified documentation to, to gain remodeling approval from the Incheon Regional Maritime Affairs and Port Administration, RMA and PA which is a ship remodeling authorization governmental branch of the Marine Ministry of Oceans and Fisheries, MOF. In a falsified document, the company raised Seawall's average revenue per trip to get the authorization for expansion. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a whole bunch of illegal mods that makes the ship more prone to... Uh, more profitable. Over. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, it's also falsified documentation that was approved by the government as well. And that's what we usually would dub as called illegal. Mm. Uh, yeah, like when you think, yeah. why are all these mods there? And you think back to well, there's an art gallery. Why is it an art gallery? Well, there's this business owner and he wants to make more, make more money. He thinks that hey, let's make more money on this business trip by turning it into like a, an art art trip as well. Art sales trip and that the and we'll put all these uh, pretty much non-essential 
artwork on board to make it tip over. Yeah. And the, you know the funny thing, got nothing wrong with the guy wanting to put an art gallery on his boat. I think the problem is though is he needs a different boat. Yeah, <laughs> he needs to build a boat, another boat. <laughs> that would have solved all his problems. Oh, but building another boat takes more money, mate. Well, there is that. Yeah. From the sound, from the sounds of it, he has plenty to spare though. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so there's inadequate regulatory body oversight by the government. So the leaders that we trust aren't doing the job, and uh, I think. One of the things that was identified was uh, this bunch of inspectors was actually uh, run by the Korean Shipping Association. That is a commercial group of marine operators and corporations. And they asked to transfer this safety's responsibility to the Ministry of Oceans and Fisheries, but the proposal was rejected. But so So he identified conflict of interest, but it's not properly dealt by the government. And then one of the warning signs we also see is the, the dock workers. So dock workers receive ferries coming in every day. And they say, why is this ferry like tipping so badly? And they're like unloading all this cargo. And they're like, this is way more that's necessary. And then they protest about it. But then again, they get ignored. So this isn't like this tipping of the, the ferry. These are like the first warning signs that something is going to go wrong. And if we ignore the warning signs, mm. something even worse is going to happen. It's like that perfect storm building up. Yeah. It's the final straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. Um, as the old expression goes. Yeah. Uh, so continuing the paper again, it says, Second, since the company started to run the Incheon to Jeju route in March 2013, the ship routinely carried more cargo than allowed in 57% of its trips. 139 out of 241 trips. The company was estimated to have earned an extra profit of 2.9 million from overloading. Some dock workers on Jeju Port once held a demonstration in front of the local governmental office to complain that the ferry company was putting more cargo on the seawall than is reported in its cargo manifest. The complaint was, was made because dock workers who were paid by the ton were paid less than to the understated amount of cargo. Yeah, so we talk about the warning signs. So it's not just overloading it, and he's trying. He's this government. So this um, this marine company is trying to like, hey, we got less cargo in there because and they're willing to pay pay as much, and not the dock workers yeah. are noticing. They're, hey, hang on, they're they're flaunting they're flaunting they're flaunting the rules that have been laid in that have been put in place to protect people, which is what rule, rules by their very definition are designed. To make sure that everyone is playing the game fairly, yeah, and no one is getting hurt, right? To protect, to protect people. Oh. That's what the rules are there for. Um, you've got a company that is flaunting the rules, and the government is watching this play out, and they're going, "We don't see anything." What is it? Um, Schultz from um, Hogan's Heroes. I see nothing. Well, is it like bribery? We we don't really know, and no. I think this is actually. I don't, I don't think we're gonna. Know. Yeah, this is actually still ongoing, I believe this investigation like yeah. they had one coming out and said nah it's not going too deep and then they had to go through all of it again so these don't these take a very long time to go through yeah um, and, and unfortunately when it goes to the courts the unfortunately the way our justice system works is that the more money you have um the longer you can draw this thing out you can go through the appeal through numerous appeals and retrials and but it's a bit of a mess. It's bad for both sides as well, and also especially for the victims. Like they're getting interviewed again and again, and having to recall this without yeah. any closure. Yeah. 
they're, and they're dr- they're dredging up the trauma of losing their loved ones and the loss, and they're dredging that trauma up again and again. Yeah. All right. And they're not they you're losing you're losing the ability to um to move on and um and heal. Yep. Next, uh, thirdly, in order to save operating costs, the employment of the crew members was based on temporary contracts. Their contracts were usually renewed, but they had low salary and low job security compared to crew members in other marine companies in Korea. The Seawall's senior crew members, including the captain and officers, were also temporary contract workers. The captain at the time of the accident was standing in for another full-time captain who was on annual leave. So, you know, we have we want to train these members, we train these guys to operate as crew. What's the best way to do it? Put them all long term, get to know each other. But trust each other. Yeah. But because of these short term contracts, you can fire them anytime. Because having a short term contract is cheaper, you don't need to pay them as much with all the other benefits associated with long term worker. Um, I think one of the, it says from the 33 crew, only 19, 19 were actually part time workers. Um, mm. Yeah. It's not. It's not good. Like when you have a constant churn of people, they don't know how they how, how their uh, cohort colleagues will if, will react, and then maybe they miss out yeah. on the, the training at the beginning of the year because they only came in the middle of the year, and so might, you yeah. might have like an emergency like uh, emergency emergency drill, so they miss out on doing the drill as a group together because you have all these temporary contracts. Um, I mean, well, you called it before. Per- it's a perfect storm. It's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. On so on not just one level, on so many levels. Yeah. Moving on. Fourthly, the company management did not respond to safety problems because the ac- before the uh, before the accident, crew members, including the full time captain of Seawall, reported problems with its restoring force and steering gear to the company management, but it was disregarded. Instead, the company executives requested crew members to load as much cargo as possible. So we have the top level people responsible for shaping the organization's uh, safety culture, the boundaries where they can act, and any um, any risks that they can't accept at the lower level needs to pass up to them. They're driving them to say, hey, no, just ignore that. We'll, we'll ignore that to say uh, more money. maintenance uh, issues. Maybe there's maybe it's a money thing there, um, but let's, let's keep pushing it. Let's keep putting as much cargo as possible on this to make as much money from these trips every day. Well, at the end of the day, the role of your executive team is to make sure that the company is more profitable. However, it's short-term profit because the goal, your secondary goal, secondary goal, your additional goal that you're trying to achieve is also to make sure that the company is successful in the long term, that it continues to be successful and continues to be profitable. If the decisions you're making is profit in in the short term, yeah. You're you're missing out on a critical part of your role, and you're doing it, and you're doing it the wrong thing. You know, having a ship sink is probably more expensive, and the recovery efforts, and also the compensations, is probably also mm. expensive compared to making, you know, that money from having that extra sales ticket on that I don't know art yeah. gallery or. Oh, but the, I think the picture the picture that you're setting up that we're setting up here though is that um, we're dealing with people that don't care. Yeah. That flaunt that flaunt the rules that do not believe the rules apply to them, and we're seeing the result here. We've got um, well, the scenario here is that you've got families who haven't been paid compensation, who haven't been taken care of due to 
negligent behavior on be- on the behalf of the shipping co- the shipping company. And then why is that? Well, the executives we know are all of these yeah. uh, church exe- church buddies who have this same philosophy that we need to push uh, ourselves to self sacrifice for success. Mm. It's a, it's a, it's toxic. Yeah, Absolutely, obviously. Um, so just a little discussion here where we have error versus violation. So error, error mm. is more like you know slips, laps, judgment. You know, I forgot this just out of the blue. Um, decisions that were made incorrectly, but um, not with you know deliberate intent. But violations is more yeah. about deliberate intent to break the rules, and it's also accepted or tolerated by the higher authorities. So. It can depend on the intent. So sometimes you have a can-do attitude. Uh, in this case, it's about profiteering and making money and pushing ahead, pushing the safety boundaries. Um, that's what I'm seeing here. It's more of a violation that it's occurring rather than a oh, an oversight. Mm-hmm. And we see it being influenced by the chairman of the company. And then he's not being held to accountable. It's being tolerated by not just executives, but also the government and the gov- regulatory bodies. Like They're not holding... Mm. you and his people accountable like they've ignored they've ignored the warning signs by the protests by the dock workers so overall the people involved they weren't making unintentional mistakes but they were making violations Interlude. We've covered a lot of MV Seawall's story, and we started with the man at the very top, Yu Byung-un, a man of dubious character, with a criminal record for fraud and a self-proclaimed preacher teaching his congregation that self-sacrifice was necessary to achieve success. As we try and understand how the Seawall operates, we can see how Yu Byung-un's business philosophy infects the business culture of the ferry business and the ferry itself. Whilst he didn't directly steer the ship recklessly to cause it a capsize, his beliefs and reckless business practices put those passengers at risk. I think as we peel back layers and layers of the story to understand what happened to the seawall, we see the presence of human systems and attitudes that led to this tragedy. It becomes relevant when we try to understand human tragedies that there is some element of human organizational behavior that leads to disaster. Whilst technologies continue to improve, humans and human behavior have not always kept up with our technological advances. In the end, we can be fragile and easily corrupted, and thus accountable for our failings as autonomous agents. All right, so going back to the event, so let's go. So we're going about the pre-event. We sort of looking at this perfect storm brewing up, and now we're going to look at the event itself. Uh, so that's from a a paper called Historical Institu- Institutional Analysis of the MV Seawall and MS Estonia Tragedies. And he goes on April fifteenth, twenty fourteen, at nine p.m. The MV Seawall with four hundred seventy six aboard, including twenty nine crew members 
325 students and 15 teachers departed Incheon after a delay of two and a half hours due to thick fog. The ferry's departure was delayed about 2.5 hours due to thick fog at the departing port, that is Incheon port. To catch up the delay, the captain selected the fast tide about 0.39 meters per second, uh, but short seaway call on the Maygol Strait instead of taking a routine route. So the captain wanted to take a break and happened to have an inexperienced third navigating officer to navigate the risky route on his own. The third navigating officer had been with the company for only for six months at the time of, of accident. It was later revealed that he was actually banned from navigating a ship from, when entering and departing a port on account of his previous navigating mistake in December 2013. Furthermore, according to the daily log for repair, a problem with the steering gear had been reported 15 days before the accident, but was not addressed. After the accident, the third navigating officer acknowledged his mistake, but pointed out that the steering turned so much faster than usual. In summary, three main factors that contributed to the sharp and sudden turn of the ferry were inexperience of the third navigating officer, poor functioning of the steering gear, and fast tide. So in this case, uh, we, we have the fog, the fog of the, 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 the conditions of the event, the fog. Uh, so when they're in the fog, they can't uh, go out, so they're now delayed. And then, well, what's happening? The captain goes, well, we've got to catch up. We're going to make schedule and, you know, we're going to maintain business. So we're going to make up for lost time. We're going to go for this high-speed route, which we've never done before. It's, uh, it's, it's away from our routine route. So it's, and then we're going to put a a junior navigation officer who's been banned for making mistakes on this unfamiliar route that is just asking for disaster to happen. But it all happens because, um, you know, when problems come up, we got to react this way. Oh, how are we going to react? Let's take more risks to make, make up for this uh, shortfall. And we, uh, we'll, we'll put this navigation officer. Oh, did no one see that he also, he's been banned? He's not, he's, he's made lots of mistakes we have these short-term contracts we don't really know each other very well so oh well yeah. right. uh, in the morning of april 16 2014 the weather during the voyage of seawall ho based on actual weather observations at the accident site is summarized as follows winds were generally from a southwesterly directions at two to three knots seas range from one to two feet air temperature was near 59 fahrenheit or 15 degrees celsius Visibility was above 20 nautical miles. The, the water temperatures in the areas were measured to be around 54 Fahrenheit or 12 degrees, which could cause hypothermia in 90 minutes. At 7.30, the third mate, Park and Gyol, began her scheduled four-hour shift on the bridge. The mate had one year of experience in steering ships and an additional five months' experience on a seawall hoe. The mate had no previous experience of steering the seawall hoe through the mate Maygol Channel from Incheon to Jeju Island. While she had dozens of experience from Jeju Island to Incheon, Helmsman Cho Jun Ki, who had six months of experience on the seawall, was under the mate's command at the time. The captain left the bridge at 8.08 and did not return for the next 30 minutes. By law, the captain was not required to stand on the bridge at all the time. The captain returned to the bridge at 8.37 and left again at 8.41. Around 8.48, the seawall ho, traveling at about 18 knots into the Maygol Channel, which is notorious for its strong underwater currents, and is 3.7 miles long, 
and 2.8 miles wide, located 11 miles away from the Jindo Island and a shortcut through the islets of the south coast of South Korea. So they're going for this, uh, sort of been delayed, they're making up for this lost time, they're going for this high-speed route, a non-center route. And what's going to happen? Well, they're going to overshoot their destination and they're going to have to do that turn. Mm. Yeah, it's... Uh, and, and also there's a few terminology differences because we are using a different uh, a document and if it's seawall hose, I think it's just seawall. And I'll try to just change it now. Pass, uh, so while the seawall passed the Maygold Channel, breakfast was being served in the cafeteria. Some of the passengers were eating breakfast, but most of them were staying in the cabins. Right before 8.48, Helmsman Cho was directing the ferry at 135 degrees. At 8.48, the mate who was monitoring the radar and radio on the bridge gave two orders to the helmsman to turn the ferry. First to 140 degrees, then to 145 degrees. The fast undercurrents on the Mango Channel required that the turns must be smaller than 5 degrees. The mate had previously received Instructions from the regular captain that turns should be made 5 degrees or less because the seawall's restoring force was known to be very low. I wonder why. The helmsman heard the mate's orders and made the first turn of 5 degrees to starboard. Once the ferry was directed to 140 degrees, the helmsman then, turned, then steered it to 145 degrees. At this moment, how the helmsman made the second turn is still in question. Uh, there are two possible scenarios. One, the police prosecution joint investigation team concluded that the helmsman had attempted a t- second turn to 145 degrees, but he turned the ferry to 155 degrees from 140 degrees when it was flustered and perceived the turn as being inadequate. So he actually overshot it. Um, uh, and number two, the helmsman claimed that at the Guangzhou District Court on October 11th, 2014, that he turned the ferry to the other direction after hearing the mate's order for restoration of balance, turn in the opposite direction. Based on what the captain testified at the Guangzhou District Court, 9th of Feb 2014, that he later saw the helm indicated uh, fixed at 155 degrees. The helmsman could have just turned the ferry to 155 degrees. Uh, while he t- tried to turn the ferry to port to restore it at his own judgment, he heard the mate's order to turn it to the opposite direction and did so. As a result of either scenario, the second turn made a turn of 10 degrees in one second as a sharp turn. Consequently, the ferry lost balance and listed 20 degrees into the water on 0849, causing cargo to fall to one side of the ferry. So here we have a new helmsman. We know this miscommunication between the navigation officer and the helmsman. So we know that these, these guys, they're not used to working to each other. They're using short-term contracts affects the team dynamics um, and so it adds confusion when they all of a sudden shout out one other thing while whilst he's doing another thing or as a course correction um, the the cargo was insecure or or overloaded because of poor practices so we've seen some of this stuff being alerted by the dock workers protests and then we have a faulty steering that was identified by the engineers so at the crucial time when they need a very good steering like five degrees is not, it's not a lot, <laughs> and just just sm- actually, I do, I remember I do remember from um, what was it like high school maths class learning um how to navigate how to do navigation through um using compass and degrees, and I rem- I do actually remember that um five degrees can actually be can actually result in um quite a um quite a bit of a difference on your course. It does, but 
it's a very small margin of error. Like, like when you think about you, you know, you turning your your, your car wheel, your car steering wheel, like turn it five degrees. Mm. Like, yep. Don't turn it ten degrees. If you turn it ten degrees, well, in this in this fast flowing water that we that our captain put us on, um, we're gonna like mm. you know, uh, we're gonna tip over. But you know, five degrees, like, well, but bump. But bump your bump your car up from um in size from a normal passenger size car to ten twenty times the size. That's your that's the size of your boat. Yeah, like yeah. He, there's there's not a, a lot of um leniency and recovery for this helmsman to operate in. No, and he's a new guy. He's also he's mm. operating in a new area. <laughs> Again, perfect storm. It is a perfect storm. All right, so the overall effect of the turning was that the ferry turned about 45 degrees to starboard and then rotated 20 degrees on the spot for about 20 seconds. The cargo containers falling to one side caused the ferry to lose the restoring force and allowed the ferry to take on water through the bow and the bow and stern doors. So so remember we talked about the restoring force, like that ballast system? That ballast system isn't there anymore. It's all been replaced because it, we're trying to overload this ferry, and to take away some of the weight, we're going to take some of the water that provides this uh, restoring uh, force. Uh, so on eight fifty, the ferry was listening to thirty degrees to port. Around this time, the chief engineer Park Kehoe stopped the engines on his own judgment. The captain, who was in his cabin, immediately went to the bridge and ordered the second mate Kim Yong Ho to turn on the anti-healing pumps to return the ferry to its upright position. But the pumps were not working. The captain ordered the. Of course they weren't. Yeah. I wonder why. Oh, because they just ignored all the maintenance requests. It's all it's, it's all too expensive. The captain ordered the chief engineer to stop the engines, which were in a dead slow ahead condition, and the chief engineer stopped them. On eight fifty two, the chief engineer ordered, on his own judgment, evacuation of the engine room through a call to the assistant engineer. So we ha- what happened? The, en- the helmsman is ordered to turn to starboard to because they overshot, because they're traveling really fast towards the Jeju Islands, and they know that from experience from the captain's uh, direction that you need to turn about less smaller than five degrees. But he's given and he's given the order to turn to 140 degrees, then to 145. So you know, small five degree increments. And then what happens is that instead of five degrees turn, he ch- he turns to 15 degrees. Uh, we don't know whether it's deliberate or not. But we know that it's a new helmsman, unfamiliar waters, fast waters, a dodgy rudder, a really unstable ship. And then what happens is that the cargo rolls over and the ship continues to turn and drift in a U-turn away from the island. And um, if you ever get a chance to see some of the photos, yeah, you'll you see what's happened there. Like some of the, the, the routes, like why are they turning this way and why did they why are they turning away? Well, they they turn one bit and because they've overshot the the boat keeps turning, and of course, and of course, you've got the poor, the the inexperienced helmsman sitting here in the main bridge, essentially, and um, going. They don't have the training or the experience or the knowledge to know to see the warning signs, to know what's going on, and yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. Oh. It's this cacophony of er- it's the cacophony of errors that are um coming to the fore and they're resulting in this um this compounding list of problems um 
in the emergency. Yeah. And, yeah. and like, you know, you could have easily saved, like, if they had the pumps working, if they didn't ignore it, then they could have easily, re- well, they might have been able to recover from the situation, but then it's a spiral of things that's occurring, and it's not exactly occurring on the spot. It's It's been occurring for a long time. They've been ignoring maintenance for a long time. Yeah, three three things that three thing no two things that could have fixed could have solved this problem would have been experienced crew and keep the ship repaired. You have those two things working, and this could have been avoidable. Yeah, and it and it's not even it takes it doesn't take retrospect to know this. This is basic common sense. Um, it's it's sad though because we're. The story that we've just gone through that we've unraveled to, um, this, um, this evening has been we're looking at this going the people who are involved who make the decisions they've been motivated by greed by wealth by money mm-hmm. now, and, th- and that that is partic- that is a particular tragedy because it's resulted it's resulted in this other tragedy yeah yeah, yeah so what I'm going to go through is some of the crew's response and we're going a little timeline there so uh this is from the thesis again so it breaks it breaks it out my time by uh so eight so zero eight fifty three communications officer kang hang song of the guest service desk of the ferry made the announcement of, of the order for passengers to stay put on his own judgment without reviewing the operations manual management regulations document or having permission from the captain or the chief communications officer Later, the captain ordered the guest services desk using the handheld two-way radio transceivers to keep announcing the order of passengers to stay put. The announcement was continued until it, until water began flooding passenger compartments and cabins about 9.52. Then 8.50 for the space of an hour. So, uh, 8.54, passengers come back to the cabins when they heard an order to announce in the ferries PA system that they should stay put. Um, and then they... Passengers have been texting each other, um, with the with uh, texting each other with the parents and friends. Um, but the teachers also stated the students so they can reinforce the message from the, the PA system um, to that is to stay put. And then we have nine ten that we have um, the first communication out uh, to to ask whether evacuation should be ordered. So was it eight eight fifty? 8.52 to 9.10. We don't really have anyone taking action. They're saying, oh, stay where you are. No one's being really decisive at this crucial time. Hmm. Uh, so just quickly going through these ones. There's a lot of uh, time that I'm realizing here. So 9.15, two helmsmen, Cho Juki and Oh Yong Suk, went to the starboard side in order to drop life rafts. Which were the which was their role in the operations management regulations document, without receiving an order from the captain or the first mate, but failed to reach the life rafts due to the list of the forty degrees. So it's too steep because of the turn, uh, and they're trying to release these life rafts, and they're doing it without any guidance from the captain or the first mate. Like the captain or the first mate should be giving all these directions, but they're not making any action there. Uh, 9.25, again, they ask the Coast Guard uh, for any evacuation or not. 
So 9.27, the captain of the bridge ordered the second mate to announce to the passengers to evacuate from the ferry. On the handheld two-way radio transceiver, the second mate ordered the guest services desk to announce the evacuation, but did not check whether crew members at the guest services desk heard and announced the order. The second mate notified the station Jinder VTS on VHF FM channel 67 that the order of evacuation was announced. The announcements made in the ferry's PA systems were, however, not broadcasted and heard on the bridge due to the improper setting, and survivors testified at the court, that is on 29th of July 2014, that the ferry's PA system repeatedly announced passengers not to move. So we have a decision made. Uh, was it, yeah, was it half an hour? Half an hour into this thing, uh, declared dead in the water, uh, they said, all right, Time to evacuate. But then no one's really providing any feedback to the, the crew members. No one, the PA system is still stuck on the old setting. And then they just have this thing, yeah, stay where you are, stay well, stay where you are. Mm. Yeah. All right, people expecting someone to make the decision, but no one's making that decision. And no one's communicating, no one's communicating the right decision to the passengers. And, and you think, you know, what should they have done? They should follow procedure, evacuate. They had a guide. They had this, um, it's an operations management regulations document which tells you about evacuations, life raft, communication procedures. Um, why do we have these things? Because, you know, if the chain of command fa- fails, if the executive fails, uh, you have best practice to help you follow in, in panic. Like they had, what, half an hour to just go through the document and tick all the things they need to do. That, like that document is your best weapon to keep you focused. So if they had consulted a manual, then less people would have died. And so, like, you know, it's at work. You know, why do we need to read this stupid document? Well, it's actually pretty important because these things are usually written in blood um, and it can save you. So just like a little overview. So 8.50 from pump not working. 9.30, the the patrol vessel arrives. 9.50, the third deck of the exit submerges. 10.10, the fifth deck... uh, submerges and then 11.18 the bow and the stern submerges the whole thing just submerges so what what is that two hours you got plenty of time here i mean i mean i'm looking at this in hindsight so i don't have the luxury yeah. but two hours what are we going to do just check the manual right that tells us what to do and then i think in the event of in the event of emergency and you need to evacuate the boat do these steps yeah like uh, I'd be surprised. Like I, I think I was on a on a ship, and they said, you know, in event evacuation, they make you watch all these stupid video, well, safety videos. You shouldn't call it stupid. Yeah, but it, you shouldn't call it stupid. But, but like, the same as it. You know, if you're flying, if you're yeah, imagine if you imagine if you're flying, you're bus- you're bus- you're have your business trips, and you're flying once or twice a week, or once or twice a fortnight, or something, or whatever. Um, those things can become very. I could see those things, those videos becoming incredibly monotonous. And you're right, stupid in some respects. But their rules, their procedures, their safety regulations, their steps that everyone on the plane know how to, what to do, if in the scenario there is an emergency. Chief amongst them, the pilot, the captain, and um, yeah, like that's their, that's what they're paid for. That's their job. If, if anything, actually, I'd say that the captain's job is not to pilot the ship. 
it, his job is to be is to know what to do when when stuff goes wrong. Well, he's that like calm voice in that panic because he's yeah. he's had all the experience. He knows what to do and not to panic. Huh. Reminds me of a Foxtel show um, I was watching a few weeks ago. When you do when you do wait just a small when you do flying, um, mm. when the and the safety announcements go on, do you ever like you know? Take off your headphones and just listen to them. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> like I don't, I don't, fl- I don't fly that often, but I do remember that um, last time I was on an airplane a couple of years back. Um, yeah, the uh, the captain captain makes an announcement. I, I think it was something like turbulence or something like that. Not nothing critical, but off go the headphones, and I'm looking up, looking to um, looking at the flight attendants to see if there's any major issues or whatever, and um, yeah, like following the rules. Yeah, I think it's just common courtesy, you know, like. All right, this thing's you know, we're all in it together, and we don't really know when the tragedy is going to occur. Like, yeah, you can maybe you know gamble and say, "Hey, I'm going to survive." But you know, take off, you know, take off your headphones, listen to the safety announcements, just read it, enjoy it, and yeah. then buckle up, back in, and watch whatever movie you're looking at. Um, well, it's re- it's re- it's it's respecting that, or it's it's acknowledging that there are people in the situation who know more than you about what's going on. Um, it's the same as if, um, if I work in a particular industry and someone who doesn't is giving me a lecture on how to do my job or how something that I'm innately familiar with works, I wouldn't pay any attention to them in exactly the same fashion. If I was listening to someone talk about something that they have an innate, they should have an innate, um, knowledge or experience in, um, I would, um, give them more credibility and listen to them. Yeah. I think, um. Yeah. In this case, you know what's different from airplanes is like, I think it's been described by myself uh, from um, from a marine a colleague that uh, marine vessels are slow, but they're also hard to recover. So it's like once they're past the point of no return, it's like seeing a train approach to you very, very slowly on a collision course. Whereas you know airplane, you have no time really. Uh, if if one thing fails, it quickly spuds down, and yeah, a, a fail in the air is pretty scary because there's no other. You got to keep flying, or you know, glide slowly, or just crash to the ground. All right. We'll quickly go through uh, the post event. So nine thirty, you get the first vessel arriving at the um, sort of first Coast Guard vessel arriving, and uh, they're trying to confirm uh, the people on board and trying to commu- uh, confirm communications. Uh, uh, not only that, uh, nine thirty three had. Nearby ships and fishing boats volunteering to for the rescue operations, and what's interesting is that the patrol vessel from the Coast Guard, that's like the, I think one of the only vessels coming out there. Maybe had one helicopter coming out there as well. And so, nine forty-three, the patrol vessel one two three reported to the ROKCG, so Republic of Korea Coast Guard headquarters, about the status of the ferry. That passengers were staying were staying put in the cabins. And they could not move. So you get the warning signs there that act urgently, giving the tilt of the boat. It was at like 40 degrees. There's no life rafts um, out in the ocean. They're all still, you know, the life raft is still in, inside the, the box, the protective casing, and the passengers are all still inside. Mm. And at 9.56, so three minutes later on, patrol vessel 123 rescu- rescued crew members, including the captain, who had stayed on the, on the bridge. 
So if you if you saw the documentary, one of the first clips of people coming on board, you actually see the captain climbing off the ship whilst the passengers were staying inside. What were they told? You had a PA going on and on and on saying, "Stay put, stay put." Yeah, and then you had the you had if you can yeah. see the documentary like the, the mobile phones that the students have, they can hear the intercom repeatedly playing, and they, and they're like giggling and laughing. These students, like there's like yeah. naive sense that you know they're thinking, oh, we're gonna die. They're actually joking about this in in the mm-hmm. in the in the phone video um, capture. But there's an, there's an old expression expression, and um, I expect most people most people are familiar with it that um, the captain goes down with his ship. There's a there's a level of duty of care that if you are the if you are put in charge of a sh- of a ship, then the passengers come before you. Yeah, I mean, there's something yeah there's something wrong about that uh, video. Like the captain goes off the ship, the students are still inside. They're still sort of naive. They're still hearing, "Stay put inside." Um, yeah. But the students trust the people in charge. That they know what they're doing, but the people in charge don't really know what they're doing in this mm. case. Yeah, yeah. So what? So the people in charge are defaulting to basic, basic human instinct, basic survival, survival mode. How do I preserve my own life? Um, why is whereas everyone else, where everyone else around them is looking to them, going, "Well, you're the leader. You're supposed to tell us what to do." Yeah. Oh, it's um, it's really tragic. So when people don't really step up, when people who are in leadership roles don't really step up, who steps up? So nine forty nine forty nine. So bear in mind, there's only like one Coast Guard vessel. Fishing boats come out yeah. and rescue well, and, the people. And just, it's worth it's worth mentioning. Yeah. It's worth mentioning that each of these points, minutes are elapsed. Yeah, P- mere minutes. So nine forty nine, fishing boats rescue people on the decks and in the water. So people from the outside situation are stepping up to help. 9.55, the Coast Guard headquarters order the announcement to uh, abandon ferry. So one decision, an hour since the event, since uh, cutting the engines. And then there was a 9.56, uh, Coast Guard um, made his order to the patrol boat to announce on its own um, uh, loud hail and guides to abandon the ferry. So the, the patrol boat supposed to uh, put in the uh, speakerphone to yell to the passengers to evacuate, but then they didn't follow that order. So that unsure about what's happening there. So there must be some kind of miscommunication on the government side. Uh, Ten zero six, the patrol vessel one two three approach again the the ferry and rescue more passengers after breaking cabin window glass. And uh, there's another famous video of the capture there, and one of the the web people people online. Um, actually, like zoomed in on one of the clips, and you can actually see the passengers, like a, a few windows down, and and you see like a chair, and you see an arm, smashing the window from the inside while the water laps over it. Uh, that's yeah. just terrible. So ten twenty four, the the boat's supposed to go to the uh, send the crew over and enter the ferry. At this point, the ferry is about. Turning about listening about 110 degrees to port. Uh, the the rescue efforts was botched, so the crew evacuated while the passengers were still aboard. You got decision to evacuate. There was a hesitation in there, like time is off the essence, but they're 
still trying to figure out, like, oh, are you guys making that decision to evacuate or or not? And no one's really taking charge. Uh, the life rafts, I think from one of the documents, they were installed but never maintained. So at the crucial time, they didn't work. Recovery was slow, so they rely on was it the, the fishing vessels. Like They're not designed for rescue efforts. Yeah, and if you, and some of the points that we picked up from the documentary, like they had volunteer divers because there's insufficient Coast Guard divers to go in. You know, it's cold water. We was like what fifteen degrees Celsius in, <laughs> and and then they're going over the recommended hours of staying underwater. And it's confined. Think about it. It's they're trying to go in to get the dead bodies. It's confined spaces. You're underwater. Uh, it's cold. And you're trying to drag a dead body out. So I think. Uh, there was actually two accidents occurred whilst recovery, so two divers died, and then uh, you had uh, one case of PTSD and one person and a diver committing suicide. Um, you, there's also a need to act from the media, so the president is here, so we, uh, we've got to make it known to the media and assure the people that we got everything under control. And one of the Coast Guard divers got caught by the civilian divers, and they said. And the civilian diver's like, why aren't you attaching this hose? And it's like, on the wrong side. And uh, they're trying to get, at this time, they're also trying to get footage of the vessel transmitted to the president's office. So they're trying to get the, the president's office, which is supposed to be like now the very top management eight um, person, is asking, oh, do you have any good video of what's going on, what's happening there? They're not really actually focused on that decision-making process. They're actually saying, give us some more information. We'll give, we'll give, give it. Give us, uh, give us PR material. Yeah, give, make it look good. Yeah, you know, send some video to the to the president's office so we yeah. can make an assessment. Hey, can there. we get some of the can we get some of those the divers in um in costume and have them um kind of standing in front of the boat so we can get a nice photo of that? Oh, I'm not really sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's another case where like that's yeah, a helicopter crash occurred from one of these uh, operations. So five person are dead. And one high school student, so actually crashed in a building of a high school, and one high school was injured. Um, yeah. So, so investigations here, like they they're helping you, give you some understanding of what's happening in the situation. So we're trying to give you, explain to you guys, what occurred, and um, it goes back to one of our stories that I've I listened to where a Yazidi girl. Um, she actually listens to one of her captors uh, in a prison, and this Yazidi girl is, you know, like the tragedy of the Yazidis in 2014, I believe. She's like traumatized, but when the media managed to connect her to her to um, to her captor who abused her, and knowing that that captor was now going to jail, it gave her some closure, it gave her some chance to recover. Um, so that's where investigations are pretty important to help help you part of the recovery process because you're in shock. You're trying to figure out what's happening. Um, it gives you a chance to to close that chapter and find some way find some way to move on from that. Yeah. But you need that you, that chapter needs to close in some form or fashion. Mm. So, like when you try to when you yeah. mess up that first investigation. And now you do it all over again. You, you imagine trying to go back and interview the victims again. Like that is a traumatic experience to go through and recall that. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you said, and you said that this has been 
in and out of the courts how many times? Uh, I think there's at least twice. I think you need to check the video. Yeah. Again. Mm. So there's government incompetence there. They're, they're trying to improve the systems and hold people accountable. That's not occurring. And then uh, there's negligence. So one of the interesting things that you actually disappears. Like he he, he oh, does he just he he goes away and there's a manhunt from the country for about four months, and they think that the church was providing protection to the to him. Um, but overall, what we're seeing is that we've seen the perfect storm brewing. We are ignoring the warning signs. So this is a tragedy. But when we peel back the layers, we're like this really shouldn't be surprising at all, and yet it does shock. It does scare us. It, may, it makes you stop and ask, not just why did this happen, but how could this happen? Um, you look at this and go, well, I thought that, I thought uh, there was something quite compelling that um, I think one of the mothers of the vi- one of the victims um, said, um, I've done the right thing. I've paid my taxes. I've um, support. I've done everything I've been asked to do, and this has, this has happened. Um, how how could this have happened? Yeah, and it's like a little bit of symbolism here. So, like, you have the leadership, you have the people in authority, the people with the wealth. Like, but you is like a billion or trillionaire by now, and they're abandoning and misleading the young and the naive who are still stuck on the ship. So, you know, remember the the survivor story at the beginning where they just got told, you know, follow your teacher's orders, follow the the crew's orders, stay put, and you know that's what we've been trained to do from a young age, and. Uh, and respect authority yeah, but in this case the adults have left the ship they've left the room and i think yeah. it becomes like a little political symbol that is later on because we hear we see later on in the documentary that it led to the president's impeachment for bribery corruption mm. so yeah. yeah it's like Heads it's rolling. like symbolic of what's occurring well the real the, the real tragedy though is that the story that you've outlined this evening, it's it's one hundred percent avoidable and it's it's sad really that this many people had to lose their lives in order for this corruption to be revealed and for things to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I was I was just telling this story to a friend of mine and it's like, you know, you talk about this you person, uh the, the chairman. Like how do you connect it with the actual sinking of the seawall? And there's a there's a James Reason who is this famous uh, researcher, and he came up with this organizational accident failure model. So why do accidents occur uh, in organizations? And he comes up with the cheese slice, uh, the organizational um, accident like cheese slice model, like James Reason cheese slice model. I'm not sure you've heard about it. No, I yeah. haven't. So so quickly explain it like imagine there's like four slices of cheese right swiss cheese Mm. and swiss cheese has like little holes in it so like imagine these are like the four barriers that prevent an unsafe action from occurring from one side the start to the end if they manage to go through all the barriers Mm. all the holes then it occurs so these barriers aren't Mm. uh aren't perfect they're they're all man-made so at the very top, you have organizational influence, and we have the cause, which is the ferry company run by use business, you know, this business philosophy, high risk, profit. 
And then we also have the recovery efforts, which were hampered by inept government that can't coordinate rescue efforts and ignores its responsibilities as the regulatory body. And the second cheese slice is risk controls. So the organization affects the how it's uh, the business processes and it puts in the risks. We have risk, reckless behavior. We don't maintain the ship. We overload it. We build more modifications to destabilize it. And then when we try to recover these guys, we're going to just say, recover at all costs. Um, all these divers, yeah, you're going to exceed all your diving limits. You're going to put you in this and just keep dragging out dead bodies and then end up with more tragedy occurring. Yeah. And then what's going to happen on the next barrier, that third barrier, is local conditions. On that day, it just so happened to be foggy, which delays the ferry, encourages the, the captain to take more risky behavior, uh, risky action. He chooses an unfamiliar route. He chooses, and the and the the crew makes the wrong turn. The crew doesn't really work very well. They they're all brand, oh, they're all pretty new to each other. The pumps, the recovery pumps, don't work. The ferries are very unstable. And then for the recovery efforts, like the the public demand uh, for resolvement, and there's a, there's a high pressure for the recovery crew to get the job done. And then we have all these individual actions, the last barrier, the, kids, the last safety barrier before the accident occurs. You make an over overcorrection, you're unable to recover. There's this mentality to re rescue the, the people at all costs. And um, the, the, the action also to just pump air on the outside of the ship, which escalates the sinking of the ship also. Yeah. So I was. We, we've talked about the intellectual why so we say why do these tragedies occur and I've, we've just gone through sort of like part of the intellectual explanation of why these things occur but it doesn't quite satisfy you fully uh, it helps with the mental recovery process for the victim but there's also the emotional why question that survivors and victims would victims families would uh, ask that need to be explained and to take out on the person. That's why you have like the justice system where they hold people to account. And when we peel back the layers of the story of the seawall and the people involved, we see the group that is willing to sacrifice safety and people for profit. So behind all these explanations of why the ship was imbalanced and all this stuff, we see this philosophy of money over people. Um, so what do you think there? It's a failure on it's a failure on multiple levels, um, and we can we it's not it's the sad thing is it's not even a retrospect thing. Like there are some there are some tragedies where you go well in retrospect in hindsight we could have done this or we could have done that, but looking at this at this scenario and what and what's happened and what led up to this tragedy occurring, there's um. There's so many failures. You, you're right. The different levels of leadership, each one failed. I think I was reading the 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 the, the, the Corona's inquiry into the Lynn Cafe. Like, why was oh yeah, why was the the terrorist Monis Han? Um, I can't remember his name. Man Man Haro Haro Monis Man Haro Monis. So I think. They've actually gone through the inquiry and said, this guy was put in jail. This guy was a known terrorist. And he was released. 
Yep. Like there is a systematic Correct. failing there to not hold him to account and to put him to jail. Well, in some, in some respects, it was. I, I'm pretty sure the justification was it was a misguided attempt to show mercy or or to be lenient. It's like show show evil people leniency, and maybe they will magically stop being evil. Mm. I mean, yeah, I, I'd be very interested to know what's happened in the bush fires. And uh, we'll see what happens from that royal inquiry, or royal commission. Well, the sad, the sad thing, yeah. Well, the sad thing at the moment with the bushfires is that obviously right now, as as we're recording this, we're um, we're dealing with the corona, um, the coronavirus. Um, both the fires and the floods, mind you, have completely disappeared off our radar. We've just moved on to another thing. Yeah. But you're st- we're still dealing with the um physical destruction, the emotional damage that's been caused by the um by these natural disasters that haven't been resolved. They're still lingering around. It's it's the tragedy of the human it's the tragedy of the human condition. But if we if we looked at as a seawall, like there's gonna be some things where we should have known this was a an issue, but we haven't dealt with it. I think that would mm. be the more disturbing thing that we will find out. Yeah. Well, in this case, the executives of the company, the um, the CEO, um, gallivanting artist, photographer, inventor, um, cult leader, he's um. What should be happening is the the group of them should be dragged in front of the courts and made made to make an account for what they've done. Yeah, that's 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 what should be happening. All right, um, I'll just go through. How do you think it applies to us? So, is there any good part or hope in this event? And I had to dig a little bit deep, and one of the things that came out was like there's three youngest non-nav, non-engineering crew who gave their lives to help other people. So two stewards, and there's one one fireworks technician, all on those short-term contracts. And they repeatedly went back into the ship to help direct the passengers to get out of the ship. So they weren't direct. Res- oh, they weren't directly responsible for, and they weren't trained for this kind of things. That was the responsibility of the, mm-hmm. of the crew of the the nav crew and the ferry captain. But they stood up when action was needed. These people, you know, just one small action saved the lives of many others of the passengers that were saved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that was. Hope. Well, we were talking in episode two, talking about human nature being good, good and good and evil. Um, that's this example and again. It's not saying that the the ill prepared, ill trained uh, navigation crew and captain are evil. I'm not making that um, assertion, but you've got the the good and evil natures of humanity at play here, where. You've got people making selfish or self-centered decisions, and you've got people making selfless, self-sacrificing decisions. So, when we're faced when we're faced with these sort of sort of tragic events that occur um, at different scale, at a mag- at a significantly large scale here, um, also on a more on a more personal local scale. In our in our own everyday lives, we ha- we have the hope. The hope here is that we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make. We can choose to be to act selflessly, 
or we can choose to act selfishly. Yeah. Like, the ferry captain was one of the first guys off the ship. Yeah. I, I can't believe that. It, stag- it, stag- it staggers to believe you. And now we've, like, we've been speaking about it for the last last hour or so, hour, hour and a half almost. Um, and obviously we'll, each of us have watched that watched that documentary before um, sitting down to talk. And um, it still staggers belief. But but that's actually not the first time because the the Italian ship, the Concordia, that yeah. the, the captain also ran off as well, and uh, I think the coast guard said, "Get back on the ship." Well, that that's what um, confused me initially. That was that's what confused me initially when um, I was reading about this story because I I was going, "Hang on, this didn't happen in South Korea. This happened in Italy. It was an Italian boat that did this." But yeah, no, it's. it's it, hap- it happened twice. Oh, God. Yeah. Nor yeah. like within like, was it two years or something like that? Like 2014? Something like that. I think what? the um, 2016, I think it was. Yeah. Let me have a quick look. 2012, actually. Costa, Con- Costa Concordia. Yeah. So two years later on, you had the Korean one. The Korean seawall. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh. I've got another Ugh. one. So understanding complex accidents. So there's many layers to it. It take a really long time to investigate. But once you understand, mm. you can see the perfect storm. You have greed. You have overloading of the ship. You have expansion. You have of the expansion of decks. You have the maintenance negligence. You have unprepared crew. You have those. You understand why this thing occurred. And then solving problems isn't just removing the root cause. So we don't just fix one area. It's it's all systems. They all interact with each other. So it's but it needs to be driven by the top. Because if your boss doesn't isn't on board of it, then you really can't make any changes. And it's just a tragedy that the boss was going the opposite direction. He's not held to the fun, the funny thing the funny thing you mentioned though is that we use the term the boss or the leader or the executive team, but at each of those levels, we are dealing with a human being, an individual who is capable of making right and wrong decisions uh, at every single stage of that. So each person has a responsibility to make the to try to make the right decision, to make to make decisions that don't hurt people or put people in harm's way. And that and that that's that's a part of a of making moral choices. Yeah, but I think one trying to look yeah. at is like, if you have a toxic boss, it's really hard to make any changes. Like, oh, absolutely. they're fighting you at every step, you, step of but, the way. But you are then, um, in turn, you are more like most likely either responsible for pe- for other people under you, or for systems or tools or a part of the machine that is the is the company you're, you're responsible for something beneath you and that um that's how you can you can enact good in spite of yep. someone higher up than you because we, we've all we all have bad bosses or we've all had the, the toxic or the bad boss um but that you're still in a position to make try to make good moral choices Mm. Yeah, and uh, yeah. lastly, people uh, watch the video. Watch in the absence. It's only about what half an hour, and they they yeah. go from they go through other stuff like yeah, recovery aspect, which we haven't really covered in, 
and also go into the political effects where they actually brought down the park government. So the, the president actually was impeached by the judges. Do you, do you want to mention you'll add a link to the in the description? Yeah, we'll, we'll put a link. Well, I think in the absence and YouTube is a, is a good enough one. Mm. Uh, any final thoughts, mate? No, I don't think so. I think when we were we, that that previous discussion, we were just having kind of covered a lot of the, a lot of the key points. How did you feel watching the video? Almost a helplessness. A again, we we've been, we've been speak we've been speaking about how um, it doesn't require hindsight to um, or retrospect to have seen. The mistakes and to have fixed them, they were blindingly obvious at every stage of the journey. This entire tragedy could have been easily avoided, but I think I think the underlying the underlying flaw here is human greed, and that's what motivated a large, a staggeringly large number of these decisions. And we can now, and we can see where you've put a love of money, or love for money, over that of the lives of people that, whose lives are in your in your hands. Um, this sort of tragedy and evil can occur. Yeah. Well, that was a deep one. Yeah. But important at the same. T- but important at the same time. There's a there's a there's a there's a very valuable uh, character building lesson here, I think, um, and we've 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 touched on it at the end, talking about making moral decisions, how to respond when you're faced with adversity and faced with tragedy, and this is like this is an example of where fail, failings have been made, and we and we and we've gone, th- you've gone through and broken down in quite extensive detail where these failings occurred, how they happened, um, and what happened. When we experience tragedy, the horror and suffering often screams out at us. We ask ourselves, why? Why did this thing happen to us? As we journey through the story of the seawall, we uncover how human action and inaction cause the ship to sink in those conditions. And therefore we cry for justice, and our legal system decides the guilt and the punishment for those who are held accountable and responsible. I think if there's one beacon of hope that shines out from the darkness of the seawall is that there are people among us willing to act selflessly when our leaders and systems fail. The fishermen, the divers, and the junior crewmen stood up when the ones who were supposed to lead us did not perform. Their spirit of selflessness clashes against a selfish spirit. If you like this show and want it to go on, please help us by sharing a link of the podcast on your social media page. Every help counts. So if you want to be part of this project, join us in promoting it. We're trying to keep this free for all to listen. If you want to send us a suggestion, question, or voicemail, email to thefireinthedesert at gmail.com or reach us through Twitter using at Fire in the Desert. 
Music is Outfoxing the Fox by Kevin McLeod at incomtech.com. A systematic analysis of South Korean seawall ferry accident. Striking a balance between learning and accountability by Yi Sung Kwong. Published by MIT in 2016. And thank you for listening to The Fire in the Desert. Conversations about life, society and culture. 